there may be some of you that can help me with this, and I'd be happy for you to come up to me afterwards and kind of straighten me out or explain kind of what what this um, what the attraction of this is. But there there's a recent phenomenon that I've haven't really been able to grasp um, or get into or figure out what the attraction is. It, it's this whole uh, boom around ancestry research. Um, through the internet, it's been made possible for you to investigate and research way back into your history, your ancestors, and put together your family tree. And I, I understand the mechanics of it, I just haven't quite figured out the attraction of it. So this summer, my uncle gave me uh, my family tree on my mother's side, going back six generations in Sweden and helping to understand something of, of, uh, of our family tree. And I can only imagine it involved an enormous amount of work. And um, I'm not sure what you would do when you get one of these. The first thing I do is I'm, I'm, I'm asking, is there anyone famous in there? Is there someone like... I'm, I'm wondering whether I'm a direct descendant of King Gustav of Sweden, or uh, at least am I a relative of Abba or Avicii, or like, is there someone, someone significant or famous or amazing in this list? And, and when I find out that they're all farmers, I'm kind of like, well, I don't know, what, what do I do with this then? I it just kind of lose interest. I don't think I'm the only one either, because um, probably you, you've heard some of these, um, the, uh, uh, for instance, George Clooney is, is uh, reportedly Abraham Lincoln's half first cousin five times removed. Uh, they've, they've also, they've also um, discovered that Ryan Gosling and Justin Bieber, Bieber are 11th cousins. So there's, there's some connection there. You find something like that. That's, that's, that's kind of interesting. Uh, George Bush is claimed to fame as he is directly descended from Pocahontas, apparently. And so you find something like that in your genealogy, and you're like, wow, that's, that's, that, you, you talk about those things. But I, I've, you probably haven't experienced this either. I, I've never had someone come up to me, and they've said, you know, I've been researching my family tree, looking into my genealogy, and, and I've discovered that my grandparents are first cousins. Like, people don't mention those things. If you find those kinds of discoveries, that, that's not the kind of thing that you share. You're looking for famous people. You're looking for things that you are proud of, things that you are excited about. And the thing is, I think we bring that same mindset to the Bible's genealogies. And, you know, if you read through those list of names, if you can barely read through them, and unless you see, like, Brad Pitt or Cleopatra or, like, someone that's, like, famous and interesting, and you're like, I don't know, it's just a list of names to me. Well, we come to today's passage, and Matthew, when he sets down to write out not only his gospel, but to give us an account of the Christmas message, he starts with a genealogy. And he starts with a genealogy to tell us something very significant about who Jesus is and what he came to do. He's, he's giving us credentials for Jesus, an important evidence that uh, he is both uh, the legitimate heir of Abraham's promises as well as David's throne. But if you've seen the banner behind me, you know that we are beginning a, a series called Christmas Surprises. And what we've been doing, what we will be doing through Christmas Surprises is saying, 
if you actually slow down and don't just rush through the Christmas story, there are actually some strange and surprising twists and, and things right in the uh, Christmas message itself that, uh, that if, we, if we rush past them, we miss some, something significant about what God's trying to cr- communicate through, uh, through this message of Christmas. And in today's passage, there's definitely something surprising. Uh, what's surprising about today's passage, in, in specific gene- Jesus' genealogy, is the outcasts. There are some people in this genealogy that you're like, whoa, I, I wasn't expecting to see them there. I was, you wouldn't think that kind of person would end up in this kind of list. And yet they do, and it, uh, they're, they're there for a very specific reason, to tell us something very uh, specific about who Jesus is and what he wants to do in our lives. So uh, we'll, we'll get to the outcasts, but uh, for the time being, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Matthew's Gospel. Uh, it's chapter, uh, we're going to start with chapter 1, verse 1, go down to verse 17. Uh, in your pew Bibles in front of you, it's on page 757. And so if you'd, uh, if you'd turn there, uh, I'm not going to put on any, anyone on the spot and ask you to read all the names this morning. You should be grateful for that. Um, I will read the names, but I'd like you to follow along with me, and if I make a mistake, you can put your hand up. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, but Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the de- deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of God. Now, the first thing this genealogy does is set out to show that Jesus is the son of Abraham who blesses the world. It shows that Jesus is a fulfillment of all that God began with Abraham, and he brings to completion that that work that had been long promised to him. So he's the son of Abraham who blesses the world. Now, 
if you know anything about the Jewish people, you know that genealogies are important to them. You know that ancestry is important to them, and it's important to them because there were certain promises of God, and they're not vague and general, but they were, they were often very specific. And, and they were tied to, to your ancestry, to which tribe you belong to and who you descended from. So, for instance, if you were, uh, uh, you, you couldn't work in the temple unless you were a descendant of Levi. You couldn't sit on the throne in Jerusalem as king unless you were a direct descendant of David. And so there were these promises, and they were tied specifically to who you were and who you descended from. Verse 1 tells us a point of this particular long list of names. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so Matthew is setting out to accomplish two things, to prove to you that Jesus is the rightful heir of Abraham's promises as well as uh, the, the promises that were made to David. He's a rightful descendant of them. Uh, proving that Jesus was a descendant of Abraham was important because it shows how Jesus fits, who he's claiming to be, and what it is that he's been uh, sent to, to do. And, and uh, so showing that he's a son of Abraham is, is giving us a picture of that. Uh, if you've been with us for any length of time, you know that we studied Abraham, but we, we need to know the, some of the background. Who was this person? Why, why, what does it mean that, he is, that Jesus is called here a son of Abraham? Well, Abraham first appears in the Bible at a point where humanity seemed almost uh, hopeless. Uh, in Genesis 3, we'd seen that Adam and Eve, the, the, the first two that God created, had been expelled from paradise. They'd been sent out of the garden. You get to Genesis 4, and one of their sons murders the other. And then in Genesis 6, you see that God's heart is grieved, it says, that, and in fact, he had regretted, is the language that the Bible uses, he had regretted that he had made humanity because sin had become so pervasive and so, so terrible that it grieved his heart. He responds with the judgment of the flood. He wipes out mankind except those who were saved um, through the ark. And you would think, maybe that'll do it. Maybe just terrible destruction, that, that will that will stop and and intervene in this thing called sin. And yet we see in just a few generations a descent again into that same pattern uh, cycle of sin and death. By the time you get to chapter 11, you have humanity seemingly united in their rebellion against God and their desire to glorify their own name instead of him at the Tower of Babel. And God scatters them. And, and you come through these 11 chapters and you think, what hope is there? What, it, it just seems that this cycle of sin and death, it just getting worse and worse and worse, and there is no hope to it. And the only, uh, if you didn't know that there was uh, more to the story, you would come to chapter 11 and you think, I, I think God's going to wipe them out now. I, I think that God is going to give up on this whole humanity experiment because they, they, they are just grieving God's heart with, with greater and greater demonstrations of sin and rebellion. And you think that God's going to 
going to bring that judgment in chapter 12, and instead we learn he calls a man named Abraham. He calls him, takes him out of his land, redefines him, reorients him to himself, but, and he makes this incredible promise in chapter 12, uh, verses 1 to 3. He promises to, uh, to bring blessing to him. But not only to bless him, but this incredible promise that somehow through him, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. It's this statement, and and it comes as a surprise to us because we thought this was going to be where God would say, I'm done with you. I've had enough of you. And just at that point, he says, I'm calling this man named Abraham, and through him, blessing is going to come to the world. But we read on from Genesis 12 and we follow the story of Abraham and it's not immediately clear how he is going to bring blessing to the world. In fact, you get to the end of Abraham's life and he dies and it's still not clear what what did God mean by bringing blessing to all the nations of the earth? It doesn't seem like that's happened yet. And then it becomes clear to us Whatever God is going to do to bring blessing to all of the families of the earth, it's not going to come through Abraham. It's going to come through his offspring. In fact, if you pay attention, as you're reading through Abraham's story, it becomes clear it's not really about Abraham because at every point, Abraham's story is more about Abraham's offspring. Keeps all this conversation about, about the child, about the one who would come, about the offspring, the seed that would be born to Abraham. And so we, we come with this picture, this, this anticipation. Who is this offspring of Abraham that will come, that will bring blessing to all the nations of their earth? Who is this one who will reverse the curse of sin and break the cycle of, of rebellion and destruction? Who is this one who can bring hope to a world that seemed without hope? And Matthew declares that he has come. That offspring of Abraham, that that son of Abraham is is here. And it's declaring that Jesus is that one who will undo the, the, this, this cycle of, of, of death, undo the, the curse of sin. He is the one who was uniquely qualified as a son of Abraham to bring to fulfillment all of those promises that were made through him. And so Matthew celebrates Jesus' birth with a genealogy to convince you of that, to say this one brings the credentials and the, 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 the line to prove to you He's the one that all of those promises have been leading towards. So Jesus is the son of Abraham who blesses the world. He's also the son of David with an eternal throne. The genealogy shows that Jesus is a legitimate heir to David's throne. And and this is important because David, like Abraham, was this individual who stands out as being set apart by God and being invested with incredible promises for how God is going to work in this world. So Jesus is the son of David with an eternal throne. If you look at the list of names, it's titled in verse 1 as the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Christ here looks like a last name, but it is the, the Greek word for anointed one. It's the 
in, in Hebrew, it's the word Mashiach, or what we would say is Messiah. It is declaring Jesus is Messiah. He is that, that promised king, the one who would come. As you look in the scriptures, with the promise to Abraham, there was these great promises that through his offspring, blessing would come. And so we think, first of all, maybe it's the nation of Israel. Maybe they're going to be such a blessing to, to, to those around them that that's, that's how God will, will bless uh, the peoples of this earth. And yet as we read on in the Old Testament from Abraham into uh, the, the nation itself, too often, despite God's working in their midst, we see that same pattern of sin and destruction, of rebellion and the curse of sin in the midst of God's people. And so it becomes clear, they, even the offspring of Abraham, they need a savior. They need someone who will come and bring rescue. And so God intervenes and he sets apart a man who he describes as being after his own heart. He sets him apart as king and he, he then further, dis, further clarifies that it, it, it will be through him that these blessings will flow. In 2 Samuel 7, 16, God promises to establish David's kingdom and give him an eternal throne. But the message wasn't that David was going to live forever and that he would just keep reigning for eternity because you come to a point in David's story and he dies. The message wasn't that David would live forever and be king forever, but that one of David's offspring again. Like Abraham, it wasn't about him. It was who he was pointing to. It was about this one who would come after him. And so with David, he was, although a man after God's own heart and, and one whom the people enjoyed great peace, enjoyed great victory, and great, enjoyed great hope, God makes a promise to him that there is this eternal throne and there is one coming, an offspring of David who will reign on that throne. And so following from David's death, with each, with, with each new king that comes to the throne, there's this anticipation. Maybe it's him. Maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the promised Messiah. Maybe this one is the Christ, the son of David that, that God has promised. And, and the the promises grow and the prophecies grow around this coming king. For instance, the prophet Ezekiel declared in, in Ezekiel 34, 22, I will rescue my flock and they shall no longer be a prey and I will judge between sheep and sheep and I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Now, this was written hundreds of years after David had died, and yet the prophecy was that this coming ruler, one who would be like David, an offspring of David, one to whom follows the pattern of David, would come and he would, he would provide for, for his people. He would rescue his people. He would save them and he would shepherd them. And, and this is one of dozens of promises of who this this coming son of David would be and what he would accomplish in people's lives. That's why a genealogy is crucial to Matthew and it should be crucial to you as well. 
in the first century or even today, you can't just show up and announce, hey, good news, I've come to bring salvation. It's been lo- I'm, I'm that one that the Bible is pointing to. You can't just say those things without proving your credentials, without handing over your birth record and declaring your genealogy. Because God's promises are more specific than that. He has, he has declared through whom these blessings will come. And so you need to prove that you are a son of Abraham. You need to show that you are a son of David. And if you can't do that, you can't be the one that the God, that the God of the Bible declares is coming and is his means of bringing salvation to this world. That's one of the reasons that I know that Joseph Smith, for instance, isn't the Messiah promised through the scriptures. It's one of the reasons that I know that Buddha is not the Messiah prophesied by the scriptures. It's one of the reasons that I know that Muhammad is not the Messiah promised through the scriptures. One of the reasons that I know that Sun Myung Moon is not the Messiah promised from the scriptures. People can make claims, but they have to bring their genealogy. They have to bring their birth record. They need to demonstrate that they are a son of Abraham and that they are a son of David because it is through them that God has, has declared that he will bring his salvation. Not just anyone will do. Now, Jesus did come with the right family tree, but his life and his teaching created anticipation in people. They saw what he did, and it made them wonder whether he was the one. And so in Matthew 12, 23, for instance, people are marveling at one of Jesus' healings, and it says, and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Is he the one? Is he the offspring that that all of those promises will come to fulfillment in? Is he the one that we've been waiting for? As Jesus rode into Jerusalem, the crowds greeted him with shouts of praise. They were excited, but notice what they said. They shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They knew that blessing, if it was to come from God, would come through the line of David. They knew that there was a coming son of David who would usher in the promises that would bring God's mercy, God's power, God's rescue, and God's salvation. And they saw those things not only through Jesus' lineage, but through his teachings, through his life, and through what the, the works that he did. And, and it attested to all that God was going to do. And so the genealogy matters. We can't celebrate Christmas and we can't um, um, uh, invest in the baby that was born significance if we don't also look first at the birth record. If we don't check the genealogy and say, is this a rightful son of Abraham? Is this a legitimate heir to David's throne? And so Matthew establishes that for us to convince us and to persuade us. And with all of the charges that were brought against Jesus and all of the enemies and opposition that came in his life, no one questioned his genealogy. No one stepped in to, uh, to criticize his credentials uh, or the, the claims that he made through them. So Matthew gives us a genealogy. And through that genealogy, he proves that Jesus is a legitimate heir of Abraham's promises and David's throne. 
But let's look at some of the specifics of that ge- genealogy and see how Jesus includes some and that the world would exclude. Because Jesus came to save sinners by dying in their place. And so it, it, it affected uh, the, the, the kind of people that he could relate to. He deliberately identifies with sinners rather than distancing himself from them. Jesus includes those that the world excludes. Now, picture for a moment if you were the son of God. And you can choose whatever genealogy you want. You get to define your own family tree because you have all power, you, all, you have all knowledge, all wisdom. So you get to define who your descendants are when you enter this world. What kind of people would you choose? Who would you want to be in your genealogy? For most of you, it would be a little bit like a fantasy football draft. You're going to go for the big names. You're going to look for the rich and the powerful, or at least, at least the moral superstars. You're going to look for some people that are pretty impressive, that you can claim that, wow, this is, this is my pedigree, and it's pretty awesome. Strangely, Jesus doesn't do that. With all of the choice at his disposal, he could have included anyone he wanted. He deliberately chooses some, chooses some people that you and I probably would have not made the cut. We would have excluded them from the list. And in fact, not only does Jesus include them in his genealogy, but Matthew, when he records that genealogy, rather than trying to hide them, actually he brings them to the surface at, at points where he didn't even need to mention them. In fact, regular convention, you wouldn't have even listed these people. Jesus, Matthew deliberately highlights them as if to boast that with, with anybody else, you would try to hide the sinners in your list and hide those people with a questionable background. And we do that because we feel ashamed and we can't deal with sin. We can't fix sin. And so we want to hide it. But Matthew highlights those, those people who have, this, have these questionable backgrounds to show that and to boast that he does have the power to, to transform sinners, that he was the one who came to bring uh, an end to that cycle of sin and death and to reverse the curse that had come upon humanity. So for instance, uh, if you take a look at the genealogy, you'll see that there are a number of women's names. Uh, that might not seem strange to you, but in the first century, people would have been surprised at that. Surprised because usually when you listed a, a genealogy, you just listed the names of all the fathers. Didn't need to mention the women. And yet Matthew deliberately mentions them, but he doesn't mention all of them. In fact, he skips over any of the famous ones, any of the ones that you'd kind of want to identify with. You, you would... You would think that he would have mentioned people like Sarah or Rebecca and Rachel, like those, those kind of famous uh, women of, of the Old Testament. You'd think that he'd want to lift those up. He doesn't. Doesn't even mention. In, instead, he lists some infamous ones that most people would be ashamed to even mention. Like in verse 3, Ma- Matthew mentions that Judah is the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Only Tamar isn't Judah's wife. It's his daughter-in-law. 
she was a neglected widow who deceived her father-in-law to bear a son. And so much so that when Judah found out what she had done, he was going to have her burned alive. And he doesn't because he recognizes, as he understands the situation more clearly, that he's an even worse sinner than she is. If you're Jesus, are you putting those people in your genealogy? If you're Matthew and you're, you're sitting down to record things and kind of putting things together, wouldn't you try and kind of gloss over that stuff? Deliberately puts it in there and even highlights, uh, and highlights the name Tamar so that you will know that Jesus came to redeem people like Tamar. That, that he can transform even someone with that in their past. And then in verse 5, he mentions... Uh, Salmon's wife, Rahab. He didn't need to mention her. Skipped over lots of other wives. But he wants you to know what kind of savior Jesus is because Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute. She only gets into the story because when the spies uh, were sent into Jericho, they were scoping out the land. Rahab was the one, despite her past, despite her sin, she welcomed the spies she provided refuge for them, provided a safe escape for them. And so because of her in investment in their lives, she decided to put her trust in the God of Israel, in a God of grace, in a God who could redeem even people that had done what she had done. And Matthew wants you to know this is the kind of Savior Jesus is. And especially after those 11 chapters of Genesis that we reviewed and said, it just seems like humanity is doomed. That, that we, are, we are rightful recipients of God's wrath and judgment because we just keep seeming to get it wrong. And God highlights women like Rahab to show, I can fix, I can fix that. I, I can redeem that past. I can transform people of all backgrounds. The next surprise in the list comes in verse 5 where you see Boaz's wife, Ruth. The problem with Ruth was that she was a Moabite. Moabites were forbidden from even entering the Jerusalem temple up to the 10th generation because they were the ones who had sought to curse the people of God. Jesus included her in the, in the genealogy to show that he redeems people no matter what your background, no matter who you are, no matter where you've come from. No one is excluded from his grace. Finally, verse 6 says, And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Did he forget the name? Does he not know Bathsheba? No, he doesn't call her by name. He wants to point out that she is the wife of Uriah to, to remind us that, that David uh, had committed adultery, that he had taken another man's wife. He points to her and, and refers to her in this way to remind us, wait a second, that's the one, isn't that the one that David murdered in order to have his wife? Did, did God really include them in this genealogy? Was, was God really able to redeem people like that? Matthew not only doesn't gloss over it, he highlights it and underlines it so that you would know there isn't anyone beyond his grace. There isn't anyone who cannot be transformed by his redeeming love. He saves people, and he does it by grace through faith. 
Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. Jesus' Jesus's salvation is a gift that comes by grace. And he highlights and, and, and underlines these people for whom if salvation was not a gift of grace, they would be without hope. If, it was, if, if God's salvation was based on you've done enough good and it somehow outweighs your bad, then these people that I've talked about, they would never get into God's story. They could never be a part of Jesus' family. And yet, in order to, to, to convince you and to persuade you that salvation is, does not come by our own effort, does not come by our own moral achievement, but will only come as a gift that we receive freely through faith. He includes these people who, in terms of achievement, they were beyond hope. So that you and I would know that we are never without hope. That there is always a, a place for us in God's family if we would only receive his gift through faith. Faith is, faith gets redefined. Faith becomes something vague and, and, and generalized in our culture today, but faith in the scriptures is very specific. Faith here in this passage, it, it gets fleshed out as we believe that Jesus is the son of Abraham. He is the source of blessing. He is the one through whom God's blessings can flow into my life as I put my trust in him. That's, that's faith. I believe in Jesus as the son of Abraham. It's also believing in Jesus as the son of David. That means he has the right to rule in my life and no one else. He has the one who has, has the right to be Lord, not me. Not me in control. Not me calling the shots. Not me defining the path. He is the one who does that and I submit to him as my eternal king. That's what faith is. And through that simple faith, we can receive a gift that we don't deserve that we couldn't earn, we can't achieve. And if we're honest in looking at the reality of sin and destruction in our own lives, without that gift, we would be without hope. This Christmas message that comes through a very strange genealogy with lots of names that most of us can't pronounce is a message of the grace of God that comes through putting our trust in an amazing Savior. Let's look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this incredible gift. We thank you for a grace that is so great that, frankly, it's hard for us to even grasp. Thank you for the way that you've proven that Jesus is the one. Help us to trust Jesus with our sin instead of hiding it, instead of pretending it's not there. Help us to look to Jesus for blessing and not keep looking to the things of this world. Help us to trust in Jesus as our king and stop running our lives as if we were the ones in charge. We praise you for your amazing grace. In Jesus' name, amen.